All right, this is uh, Mortal Engines, Chapter 22, and it is called Shrike. Had the stalker only just arrived, or had he been standing watching them squabble, dark and still, on the stone-strewn hillside like a stone himself? He took a step forward, and the damp grass smoldered where he set his foot. They are mine. The pirate swung around. Mag's machine gun spraying streams of tracer at the Iron Man, while Mungo's hand cannon punched black holes in his armor and Ames blazed away with his revolver. Caught in the web of gunfire, Shrike stood swaying for a moment. Then slowly, like a man walking into a strong wind, he started forward. Bullets sparked off his armor and his coat tore away in rags and tatters. The holes the cannon made spewed something that might have been blood, might have been oil. He stretched out his arms, and an iron claw was ripped away, and another. Then he reached Mags, and she made a choking sound and went backward into the bracken and down. Ames flung down his gun and turned to run, but Shrike was suddenly behind him, and he stopped short, gawping at a handful of red spikes that sprouted from his chest. Mungo's gun was empty. He threw it aside and pulled his sword out, but before he could swing it, Shrike had grabbed him by the hair and wrenched his head back and severed his neck with one scything blow. Tom, said Hester, run! Shrike flung the head aside and stalked forward and Tom ran. He didn't want to. He knew there was no point and he knew he should stand by Hester, but his legs had other ideas. His whole body wanted only to be away from the terrible, dead thing that was coming toward him down the hill. Then the ground gave way under him. He plunged into cold mud and fell, rolled over, and came to a rest against an outcrop of stone on the edge of the same mire that had swallowed Chrysler Peavy. He looked back. The stalker stood among the sprawling bodies. Airhaven was overhead, testing its engines one by one and its lights kindled cold reflections on his moon-silvered skull. Hester stood facing him, bravely holding her ground. Tom thought, she's trying to save me. She's buying time so that I can get away, but I can't just let him kill her. I can't. Ignoring the countless voices of his body that were still screaming at him to run, he started to crawl back up the hill. Hester Shaw, he heard Shrike say and the voice slurred and caught like a faulty recording. Steam hissed from the holes in a stalker's chest, and black ichor dripped from him and bubbled at the corners of his mouth. "'Are you going to kill me?' the girl asked. Shrike nodded his, head, his great head just once. "'For a little while.' "'What do you mean?' The long mouth dragged sideways, smiling. "'We are two of a kind.' You and I, I knew it as soon as I found you that day, day on the shore, after you left me, the loneliness. I had to go, Shrike, she whispered. I wasn't part of your collection. You were very dear to me. Something's wrong with him, thought Tom, inching up the hill. Stalkers weren't meant to have feelings. He remembered what he had been taught about the resurrected men all going mad. Was that seaweed hanging from the ducks on Shrike's head? Had his brains gone rusty? Sparks were flickering inside his chest behind the bullet holes. Esther, Shrike grated, 
falling heavily to his knees so that his face was at the same level as hers. Chrome has made me a promise. His servants have learned the secret of my construction. Fear prickled the back of Tom's neck. I will take your body to London, Shrike told the girl. Chrome will resurrect you as an iron woman. Your flesh will be replaced with steel. Your nerves with wire. Your thoughts with electricity. You will be beautiful. You will be my companion for all time. Shrike, Hester snorted. Chrome won't want me resurrected. Why not? No one will recognize you in your new body. You will have no memories, no feelings. You will be no threat to him. But I will remember for you, my daughter. We will hunt down Valentine together. Hester laughed, a strange, mad, terrible sound that set Tom's teeth on edge as he reached the place where Mungo's body lay. The heavy sword was still clamped in the pirate's fist, and Tom reached out and started prying it free. Glancing up, he saw that Hester had taken a step closer to the stalker. She tilted her head back, baring her throat, readying herself for his claws. All right, she said, but let Tom go. He must die, insisted Shrike. It is part of my bargain with Chrome. You will not remember him when you wake in your new body. Oh, please, Shrike, no, begged Hester. Tell Chrome he escaped or drowned or something, died somewhere in the out country, and you couldn't bring him back. Please. Tom clung to the sword, its hilt still clammy with Mungo's sweat. Now that the moment had come, he was so scared that he could barely breathe, let alone stand up and confront the stalker. I can't do this, he thought. I'm a historian, not a warrior. But he couldn't desert Hester, not while she was bargaining away her, her life for his. He was close enough to see the fear in her eye and the sharp glitter of Shrike's claws as he reached for her. Very well, the stalker said. Gently, he stroked Hester's face with the tips of the blades. The boy can live. The hand drew back to strike. Hester shut her eye. Shrike! howled Tom, hurling himself up and forward with the sword held out stiffly in front of him, feeling the green light spill across his face as Shrike spun hissing to meet him. An iron arm lashed out, hurling him backward. He felt a searing pain in his chest, and for a moment he was sure that he had been torn in two, but it was the stalker's forearm that struck him, not the bladed hand, and he landed in one piece and rolled over, gasping at the pain, expecting to see Shrike lunge at him, and then nothing ever again. But Shrike was on the ground, and Hester was bending over him, and as Tom watched the stalker's eye flickered, and something exploded inside him with a flash and a crack and a coil of smoke leaking upward. The hilt of the sword jutted from one of the gashes in his chest, crackling with blue sparks. Oh, Shrike, whispered Hester. Shrike carefully sheathed his claws so that she could take his hand. Unexpected memories fluttered through his dis uh, disintegrating mind and he suddenly knew who he had been before they dragged him onto the resurrection slab to make a stalker out of him. 
He wanted to tell Hester, and he lifted his great iron head toward her, but before he could force the words out, his death was upon him, and it was no easier this time than the last. The great iron carcass settled into the stillness, and smoke blew away on the wind. Down in the valley, horns were blowing, and Tom could see a party of riders starting up the hill from the cam- uh, caravanserai, alerted by the sound of gunfire. They carried spears and flaming torches, and he didn't think they would be friendly. He tried to push himself upright, but the pain in his chest was almost made him faint. Hester heard him groan and swung, and swung toward him. "'What did you do that for?' she shouted." Tom could not have been more surprised if she had slapped him. He was going to kill you, he protested. He was going to make me like him, screamed Hester, hugging Shrike. Didn't you hear what he said? He was going to make me everything I ever wanted. No memories and no feelings. Imagine Valentine's face when I came for him. Oh, why do you keep interfering? He would have turned you into a monster. Tom heard his own voice rising to a shout as all his pain and fear flared into anger. I'm already a monster, she shrieked. No, you're not. Tom managed to heave himself to his knees. You're my friend, he shouted. I hate you. I hate you, Hester was yelling. Well, I care about you, whether you like it or not, Tom screamed. Do you think you're the only person who's lost their mom and dad? I feel just as angry and lonely as you, and you don't see me going around wanting to kill people and trying to get myself turned into a stalker. You're just a rude, self-pitying... But the rest of what he had been planning to tell her died away in an astonished sob, because suddenly he could see the town below him, and Airhaven, and the approaching riders as clearly as if it were the middle of the day. He saw the stars fade. He saw Hester's face freeze in mid-shout with spittle trailing from the corners of her mouth. He saw his own wavering shadow dancing on the blood-soaked grass. Above the crags, the night sky was filling with an unearthly light, as if a new sun had risen from the outcountry somewhere far away toward the north. This is Mortal Engines, chapter 23, called Medusa. Catherine watched, transfixed, as the dome of St. Paul's split along black seams and the sections folded outward like petals. Inside, something was rising slowly up a central tower and opening, as it rose, an orchid of cold white metal. The grumble of vast hydraulics echoed across the square and shivered through the fabric of the engineerium. Medusa, whispered Beavis Pod, standing behind her in the open doorway. They haven't really been repairing the cathedral at all. They've built Medusa inside St. Paul's. Guilds persons? They turned. An engineer was standing behind them. What are you doing? He snapped. This gantry is off limits to everyone but L Division. He stopped, staring at Catherine, and she saw that Beavis was staring too, his dark eyes wide and horrified. For a moment, she couldn't imagine what was wrong with him. Then she understood. The rain. 
She had forgotten about the guild mark he had painted so carefully between her eyebrows, and now it was trickling down her face in thin red rills. What in Quirk's name? The engineer gasped. Kate, run! shouted Beavis, pushing the engineer aside, and Catherine ran and heard the man's angry shout behind her as he fell. Then Beavis was with her, grabbing her hand, grabbing her by the hand, darting left and right down empty corridors until a stairway opened ahead. Down one flight and then another, and behind them they heard more shouts and the sudden jarring peal of an alarm bell. Then they were at the bottom, in a small lobby somewhere at the rear of the engineerium. There were big glass doors opening onto top tier, and two guildsmen standing guard. There's an intruder, panted Beavis, pointing back the way they had come. On the third floor! I think he's armed! The guildsmen were already startled by the sudden ringing of the alarm bell. They exchanged shocked glances, then one started up the stairs, dragging a gas pistol from his belt. Beavis and Catherine seized their chance and hurried on. My colleague's been hurt, explained Beavis, pointing at Catherine's red-streaked face. I'm taking her around to the infirmary. The door swung open and spilled them out into the welcome dark. They ran as fast as they could into the shadow of St. Paul's, then stopped and listened. Catherine could hear the heavy throbbing of machinery and a closer, louder throb that was the beat of her own heart. A man's voice was shouting orders somewhere, and then there was a crash of armored feet coming closer. Beefeaters, she whispered. They'll want to see our papers. They'll take off my hood. Oh, Beavis, I should have never asked you to get me in there. Run, leave me. Beavis looked at her and shook his head. He had defied his guild and risked everything to help her, and he wasn't about to abandon her now. Oh, Cleo, help us, breathed Catherine, and something made her glance toward Paternoster Square. There was, an, there was old Chudley Pomeroy standing on the guild hall steps with his arms full of envelopes and folders staring upward. She had never been so happy to see anyone in her whole life, and she ran to him, dragging Beavis Pod along with her and calling softly, Mr. Pomeroy! He looked blankly at them, then gasped in surprise as Catherine pulled the stupid hood off and he saw her face and her sweat-draggled dra hair. Miss Valentine, what in Quirk's name is happening? Look at those damned interfering engineers have done to St. Paul's! She looked up. The metal orchid was opening to its full extent now, casting a deep shadow on the square below. Only it was not an orchid, it was a cowled, flaring thing like the hood of some enormous cobra, and it was swaying or swinging around to point at Banzerstadt Bayerth. Medusa, she said. Who? asked Chudley Pomeroy. A bug siren wailed. Oh, please, she cried, turning to the plump historian. They're after us. If they catch Beavis, I don't know what will happen to him. Bless him. He did not say, why or what have you done wrong? Just took Catherine by one arm and Beavis Pod by the other and hurried them toward the Guildhall garage where his bug was waiting. As the chauffeur helped them into its squad of beef eaters came clamoring past, but they paid no attention to Pomeroy and his companions. He hid Catherine's coat and hood behind a seat and made Beavis Pod crouch down on the floor of the bug. Then he squeezed himself in beside Catherine on the back seat and said, Let me do the talking. As the bug went purring out into Paternoster Square, there was a throng of people outside the elevator station gazing up in amazement at the thing that had sprouted from St. Paul's. 
Beefeater stopped the bug while a young engineer peered in. Pomeroy opened a vent in the glastic lid and asked, Is there a problem, Giltsman? A break at the Engineerium. Anti-tractionist terrorists. Well, don't look at us, laughed Pomeroy. I've been working in my office at the Guildhall all evening, and Miss Valentine has been kindly helping me to sort out some papers. All the same, sir. I'll have to search your bug. Oh, really? cried Pomeroy. Do we look like terrorists? Haven't you got better things to do on the last night of London, with a dirty great conurbation bearing down on all of us? I shall complain to the council in the strongest possible terms. This is outrageous. The man looked uncertain, then nodded and stepped aside to let Pomeroy's chauffeur steer the bug into a waiting freight elevator. As the doors closed behind it, Pomeroy let out a sigh of relief. Those damned engineers. No offense, Apprentice Pod. None taken, said Beavis's muffled voice from somewhere below. Thank you, whispered Catherine. Oh, thank you for helping us. Don't mention it, chuckled Pomeroy. I'm always happy to do anything that upsets Chrome and his lackeys. Thousands of years old, that cathedral, and they just go and turn it into a... into whatever they've turned it into, without so much as a buy or leave. He looked nervously at Catherine and saw that she wasn't really listening. Gently, he asked, But whatever have you done to stir them up, Miss Valentine? You don't have to tell me if you don't want to, but if you and your friend are in trouble, and if there's anything an old coot like me could do... Catherine felt helpless, tears pricking her, prickling her eyes. Please, she whispered, could you just take us home? Of course. They sat in awkward silence as the bug drove through the streets of Tier 1 into the park. The darkness was full of people running and shouting and pointing up toward the cathedral. But there were other runners, too. Engineer security men leading squads of beefeaters. When the bugs stopped outside Cleo House, Pomeroy climbed out to walk Catherine to the door. She whispered a heartfelt goodbye to Beavis and followed him. Could you take Apprentice Pod to an elevator station? She asked. He needs to get back to the gut. Pomeroy looked worried. I don't know, Miss Valentine, he sighed. You've seen how head up the engineers are. If I know them, they'll have all their factories and dormitory blocks locked down tight by now and security checks in progress. They may have worked out that he's missing along with two coats and hoods. You mean he can't go back? Catherine felt dizzy at the thought of what she had done to poor Pod. Not ever? Pomeroy nodded. Then I'll keep him with me at Cleo House, Catherine decided. He's not a stray cat, my dear. When Father gets home, he'll be able to sort everything out, won't he? Explain to Lord Mayor that it was nothing to do with Beavis. It's possible, agreed Pomeroy. Your father is very close to the Guild of Engineers. A damned sight too close, some people say. But I don't think Cleo House is the place to keep your friend. I'll take him down to the museum. There's plenty of room for him down there, and the engineers won't be able to search for him without giving us warning first. Would you really do that? asked Catherine, afraid that she was dragging yet another innocent person into the trouble she had created. But after all, it would only be for a few days until Father came home. Then everything would be all right. Oh, thank you, she said, happily standing up on tiptoe to kiss Pomeroy's cheek. Thank you. Pomeroy blushed and beamed at her and started to say something else, but although his mouth moved, she could not hear the words. Her head was filled with a strange sound, 
a whining roar that grew louder and louder until she realized that it wasn't inside her at all, but pounding down from somewhere overhead. Look! shouted the historian, pointing upward. Her fear had made her forget St. Paul's. Now, looking up at top tier, she saw the cobra hood of Medusa start to crackle with violet lightning. The hair on her arms and the back of her neck prickled, and when she reached for Pomeroy's hand, pale sparks jumped between the tips of her fingers and his robes. Mr. Pomeroy, she shouted, what's happening? Great quirk, the story cried. What have those fools awoken now? Ghostly spheres of light detached themselves from the glowing machine and drifted down over Circle Park like fire balloons. Lightning danced around the spires of the guild hall. The rushing, whining roar grew louder and louder and higher and higher until even with her hands clapped over her ears, Catherine felt she could not bear a moment more of it. Then, quite suddenly, a stream of incandescent energy burst from the cobra's hood and stretched northward, a snarling, spitting cat o nines tails lashing out to lick at the upper works of Panzerstadt Bayreuth. The night split apart and went rushing away to hide in the corner of the sky. For a second, Catherine saw the tears of the distant contribution limed in fire, and then it was gone. A pulse of brightness lifted from the earth, blinding white, then red, a pillar of fire rushing up in silence into the sky, and across the flame-lit snow, the sound wave came a rolling, a low, long, drawn-out boom, as if the great door had slammed shut somewhere in the depths of the earth. The beam snapped off, plunging Circle Park into sudden darkness, and in the silence she heard a dog howling madly inside the house. Great quirk! Pomeroy whispered, all those poor people. No, Catherine heard herself say, oh no, no, no. She started to run across the garden, staring toward the lightning-flecked cloud that wreathed the wreckage of the conurbation. From Circle Park and all the observation platforms came the sound of wordless voices, and she thought at first that they were crying out in horror the way she wanted to, the way she wanted to, but no. They were cheering, cheering, cheering.